Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. That's the sound of a ghost. It's what we think the huia might sound like if we'd let it live. But we didn't. It's gone. Just like the moa, the grayling, kawakawiu, the greater short-tailed bat. Like Adam's mistletoe, the airwell beetle. I could go on for quite some time because New Zealand has one of the longest lists of extinct species in the world. Koto Katoa. I'm Dave Hansford. I'm a science and environment writer and I've been covering conservation stories here in New Zealand for 20 years. Most have been about last-ditch efforts to stop what's left of our native wildlife, joining the huia in oblivion. You're listening to Dealing With Loss, the first in the Fight for the Wild podcast series, looking at the latest, more heartening story of that effort of Kiwis, ordinary and extraordinary, putting their shoulders to a conservation revolution called Predator-Free 2050. These podcasts complement the film series Fight for the Wild. You can find both on the podcast and series pages at rnz.co.nz. How did it come to this? How is it that one of the world's most wondrous menageries is now on life support? To answer that question, we must travel back in time, you and I. I'm just going to set the dial to 66,038,000 years ago, on a June day. Wherever this is, it's not New Zealand, or at least not yet. Those podocarps and fuchsias, they look familiar, but all these palms and vines and outrageous orchids make it look more like tropical Queensland. They're not called orchids yet, of course. Nothing's called anything, because there won't be any humans for another 62 million years. But one day, they'll name this place Zealandia. Right now, though, it's flotsam, barely treading water. It used to be the eastern coast of the giant southern supercontinent, Gondwana. Some of it was joined to what is now eastern New South Wales. The rest was a part of Antarctica. Then the Earth's crust failed. Molten rocks surged to the surface. Then it oozed south, bringing Zealandia with it to this place, utterly alone in a waste of ocean, adrift in time and space. The dinosaurs in that podocarp forest and their cousins, the pterosaurs, wheeling and screeching above. They've ruled this planet for 65 million years. But you and I know their dynasty is about to end. That glow in the sky is the Chichilob Impactor, a massive meteor 
and by dint of fate and physics, it's hurtling towards us at 64,000 kilometres an hour. When it hits, it's going to fire 200,000 cubic kilometres of debris into the atmosphere, and that will block the sun. In the months and years to come, three quarters of all species on Earth will be extinguished by the long, cold dark. Most of them big. As a general rule of thumb, nothing heavier than 25 kilograms is going to survive. Which is good news for this little sphenodontid sunning itself in the leaf litter. 60 million years from now, we'll know it as a tuatara. The same goes for these tiny little frogs, strangely silent and no bigger than half your thumb. But here on Zealandia, the demise of the dinosaurs will most benefit their closest relatives, the birds. Here's a little wren that might just pass for Titipunamu, our future rifleman. In the undergrowth, crow-like birds with beaks bedecked with bright-coloured wattles, almost like a kōkākō. There are flightless rails here too, heavy of build and beak, and parrots with faces like owls. Back on Gondwana, the meteor is about to give the mammals their luckiest of breaks. They'll survive the coming nuclear winter. Unlike the dinosaurs, they can make their own body heat, and they already know how to find food in the dark. They're about to inherit the Earth, snapping up all those ecological niches the dinosaurs will leave empty. But Aotearoa's story is different. There are almost certainly mammals of some kind aboard Zealandia when it set sail from Gondwana. But for some reason, they never thrived here. And at some point, they vanished altogether. So that today, our only native mammals are those that swam or flew here seals and bats. Our animals and plants, says documentary maker Peter Hayden, are the nearest thing on Earth to life on another planet. What happened in New Zealand was uh, an evolutionary experiment that happened nowhere else in the world. If not only the dinosaurs had died out and become extinct, if the mammals had as well, and it was a close-run thing, they nearly did, then the world would have been like New Zealand, it would have been a world of birds. And the diversity, I mean, that's something that we can never have again in that amount because we've lost so much in the intervening years, but the diversity, there was nothing like it in the world. Zealandia's birds then will enjoy a truly splendid isolation. They'll fill the gaps where once were dinosaurs. And they'll do it in such weird and wondrous ways that 66 million years later, Naturalists like Rod Morris will celebrate this menagerie of relics as some of evolution's best work. It was absolutely extraordinary. It was like nothing else on the planet. We're not the largest island in the world, but we're the oldest island in the world. And that has implications for the plants and the animals that live here, our only mammals were two little bats and they could fly like the birds, that's how they got here. How wacky is that? Everywhere else in the world, birds were figuring out ways to avoid or escape the new breed of predators, mammals. 
which, now the dinosaurs were gone, were getting bigger, bolder and smarter. But our birds, as well as the insects, reptiles and frogs, didn't have to worry about mammals. Instead, danger hurtled out of the sky. The biggest eagle the world has ever known, Haast's eagle, wheeled above the forest canopy seeking prey. It was hefty. Females weighed 15 kilograms. But evolution clipped its wings at a proportionately modest three metres, the better to swoop between trees and branches. The forest floor was a much safer place, and many New Zealand birds, moa, kiwi, weka, takahe, kākāpō, adopted the ground as their permanent home. Their wings withered. Instead, they strode about on stout legs, hunting through the leaf litter for berries, reptiles or invertebrates. They had become avian mammals. They also became quite smelly. Lots of our wildlife is pungent, mainly because there's no evolutionary pressure not to be. Eagles and hawks and falcons aren't known for their sense of smell, but they do have impressive eyesight. So our birds evolved drab, camouflaged feathers and took to getting about at night. When danger threatened, all they had to do was keep perfectly still. It all worked brilliantly. Aotearoa's creatures went about their long, slow-breeding lives for 80 million years, untroubled by anything more than casual predation. Then one day, Great Waka appeared on the horizon. The Polynesian explorers had found Aotearoa, and they brought with them the needs and seeds of a new life. Among their provisions was a living larder of kiori, Polynesian rat. For companionship, they brought Kuri, their dogs. For 80 million years, the rules in this country were the dangerous critters that you kept away from were birds. And overnight, the rules changed. Hunting, killing, fur, covered mammals with four legs stepped onto the shore in New Zealand and the slaughter began. The kiori and the kuri found a forest swarming with flightless, hapless prey. Over 80 million years, our wildlife had only ever learned to avoid predators that hunted by sight in the daylight. Now, overnight, they were being hunted by predators that could sniff them out in the dark. And all they had was that one, now hopelessly redundant strategy, to stay rooted to the spot. All the adaptations that had kept them safe for millennia in the course of one fateful day now made them pitifully easy prey. From the beginning, when the tiny little Polynesian rat first stepped ashore, it was cleaning up all the invertebrates, the reptiles, moving through the birds, there was this wave of extinctions. What a horrible slaughter that must have been. But there was worse to come, much worse. 
settler ships arrived from Europe in the 19th century. Below decks were savvy stowaways from the English docklands, says James Russell, a conservation biologist at the University of Auckland. Serratus norvegicus, otherwise known as the Norway rat or the brown rat, was the second of three rat species to come to New Zealand. We think it arrived at about the start of the 19th century, really was a game changer for the presence of rats in New Zealand. It started impacting a lot more bird species that previously hadn't been impacted. The Norway rat is a really adaptable species. They're a very comfortable rat around the water and a very confident swimmer, able to swim probably over two kilometres of open ocean if need be to colonise some of our offshore islands. It's a quintessential invasive species, really. But Norway rats were just the advance guard. Over the decades that followed, also came cats, ferrets, stoats, weasels, hedgehogs, possums, deer, chamois. But most disastrously, perhaps, came another kind of rat, and this one could climb trees. Shipwrat is one of the world's most extraordinary mammals. It might be the most widely distributed mammal on the planet, apart from humans. And its success comes from, it's, it's really got no flaws. It's um, sort of small size, it's general diet, rapid reproduction rate, doesn't need to drink direct water. It can swim, it can climb, and so it can go to a new place and find some food and reproduce rapidly. It's capable of quite quick genetic change so it can adapt itself to its new environment. And as a result, it has pretty much colonized the whole world. Landcare researcher John Innes is an authority on the ship rat. Ship rats will eat eggs and chicks as far as adult birds go, we think that they will kill adults up to their own body weight. That would certainly include, um, I mean, all the small birds like fantails, tomtits and robins, if they stay on their nest when a rat approaches, the rat will kill them. We think that ship rats can kill roosting and nesting bellbirds, and that's the top of their range. The next fiasco was entirely premeditated. In fact, the settlers had several goes at making it stick, says Bruce Warburton, a wildlife scientist at Landcare Research. So the brush-tailed possum was introduced from Australia to establish a fur trade, and the first recorded successful introduction was at Riverton um, near uh, Invercargill in Southland in 1858. Often people see them up trees and think that they spend all their time in trees. I mean, they're found all through the Mackenzie Basin in Otago and, and central Otago, the tussock country. So they don't need trees, but they just need some dry nest site and food. Possums in New Zealand in, in good habitat tend to get to a much higher density than they do in their homeland in Australia. And that's probably two reasons. One, our forests didn't evolve in the presence of any significant browsers. So when possums were introduced, it was just like going to an ice cream shop. There was just so much food there for them. And in New Zealand, we don't have any predators as they do in Australia. A few years ago, Warburton calculated the number of possums we have in New Zealand. He came up with a rough total of 30 million, all of them chewing nightly on our native forest. But completely by accident, wildlife researchers discovered that wasn't their only crime. In 1991, conservation workers placed a remote infrared camera beside a kōkako nest 
in Mapra Forest, south of Tikuiti, in the central North Island. They knew something was eating kōkaku eggs and chicks, but they weren't prepared for footage the next morning that clearly showed a possum eating two of the kōkaku's eggs. Since then, says John Innes, possums have been filmed eating a range of native species. We've certainly filmed them ourselves um, eating uh, kereru eggs, and they have been filmed taking kaka as well. So possums are serendipitous eaters of meat. Very interesting. You film them going through a nest with chicks. They might walk through as if they're not there. They might bite them and not consume them at all. And or sometimes they will really get stuck into them and eat a lot of flesh. If only we'd stopped at rats and possums. Maybe our bigger birds would have been spared. But we didn't. Their fate was sealed when colonists, hungry, homesick, decided to let rabbits go. In the absence of any predators, they soon procreated into a plague, so that powerful, politically connected pastoralists were soon lobbying government for a solution from out of the ranks, as they put it, of the rabbits' natural enemies. Those enemies, it was decided, should be the weasel, the stoat and the ferret, three lethal predators from the northern hemisphere. Naturalists here and abroad pleaded with the government not to take such a calamitous step. But the rabbit nuisance bill was duly passed in 1881. Sure enough, from the moment of their release in Aotearoa, stoats found our flightless, frozen-to-the-spot birds much easier hunting than rabbits. Carolyn King literally wrote the book on these three predators and is a global authority on stoats in particular. They are beautiful machines. They are so adaptable and so good at what they do. They are the worst things that could have been brought here. It only has one gear, high speed, and it can move long distances. Stoats can travel kilometres, tens of kilometres across the landscape, looking for new places to hunt. You'll sometimes hear people say that stoats kill for fun. It's true, says Caroline, that should a stoat happen upon a nest hole full of, say, carcachicks, it'll kill a lot, and the mother for good measure. But not out of blood lust. Stoats, remember, come from the northern hemisphere, where the winters are long and hard so a stoat will stash that pile of corpses and snack on it through the winter. In Aotearoa, the winters are milder, but the stoats never unlearned that ancestral survival trick. Someone might also tell you that there's no such thing as a female stoat that isn't pregnant. Now, there is some truth to that one. Stoats have a very peculiar reproductive system. They have an adaptation that the young females in the nest are incredibly precocious. They pass puberty as unweaned nestlings. And the adult female, when she allows an adult male into her nest, she will mate with him, and then he will mate with all the infant females. That means that any female that manages to get onto an offshore island is, as it were, a, a time bomb. She has a whole new population within her. Of all the curses we've put on our wildlife, Stoats might just be the worst. Natural-born killers, they can subdue prey many times their own size and weight, 
so that even heavy birds like takahe, kiru, feel aren't safe. Graham Elliott is a Department of Conservation ecologist and he's spent the last 40 years gauging the threat that stoats present. Hole nesting was a, used to be a really good idea in New Zealand. So we had a, a range of aerial predators and they mostly hunt by sight. So getting in a hole was a, a really good idea. And a hole with a small entrance was an even better idea because your predator couldn't get in. But of course these days the main predators are rats and mice and stoats, which are smaller than those avian predators and um, they hunt by smell. So being in a hole is a, is a really dumb idea. And the other thing these birds do wrong is only the females incubate. So you see it particularly with moorhoa. So you end up with these populations that are terribly skewed. They've got lots and lots of males and hardly any females. Most of the nests, probably 80% of them get preyed upon and about half of the females also get killed on the nest. We've, we've monitored uh, robins in the Marlborough Sounds through, through stoat and rat plagues, and they really can't produce any chicks at all. Um, they, their nests usually get preyed upon before the eggs even hatch, so you get these poor little robins producing clutch after clutch after clutch and producing nothing. Ours is now the wreckage of a fauna. Within 750 years of human arrival, half of Aotearoa's vertebrate species were gone. At least 51 birds are now extinct. We also lost three frogs, three lizards, a bat, a freshwater fish, four plants, and an unguessed host of invertebrates. Graham Elliott has been to some of the last pest-free places in Aotearoa, like Whenua Ho, an island off the coast of Rakiura, or Stewart Island. So Fenohoe's got no predators, there's no rats, there's no mice, there's no stoats, there's no cats. And the thing that amazes you down there is there isn't a millisecond goes by where you can't hear a kaka. There's just this cacophony of kaka calls all day. And when you wander around in the forest, there's parakeets flying off all over the place and there's bellbirds and toys. The place is just jam-packed with birds. So it's tempting to think, he says, that the ecology of such places has been restored. But even Whenua Ho is a jigsaw with lots of pieces missing. Even though at the moment Whenua Ho feels like it's jam-packed full of birds, there's no bush wrens, there's no long-toed wrens, there's no Stevens Island wrens, there's no Kokako down there, there's no saddlebacks on the island, there's no owl at night jars, there's no ads builds, there's no mowers. In pre-human times, there would have been two or three times the diversity and probably two or three times the abundance. So even what we think of as now as being really birdy is just a shadow of its former self. We've lost so much at staggering and we've forgotten that we've lost it, really. Few New Zealanders now recall that we once had our own raven, a native swan and weird flightless geese. There was a giant penguin and the biggest gecko the world has ever known the mysterious Kawakawio. Ours is one of the worst extinction episodes in modern history. No one will ever see a living moor, a piopio, a laughing owl. The song of the huia and the South Island kōkaku have long stopped echoing. All are now just mute bones and skins, staring lifelessly from museum displays. And it's not over. According to the Department of Conservation, 
some 4,000 living species are considered to be at some kind of risk. 800 of those we could still lose to extinction. A few years ago, John Innes tried to calculate the ongoing carnage. He estimated that invasive predators devoured the eggs and chicks of some 26 million native birds each and every year. This figure's been widely quoted. I realise now that that, that figure's not correct at all. It was actually a calculation of the number of native birds killed in native forests. The native forests are only 23% of New Zealand, and it doesn't include all the exotic birds. And it doesn't include waders, and it doesn't include seabirds and waterfowl. So the, the impacts of, of predators on birds is vastly greater than that 26 million. The actual number's probably at least five times that. It's probably, in fact, 100 million or more. What we have then are rapidly aging native birds failing year after year to produce the next generation. Ecologists warn that while we might still be seeing birds around, sooner or later they'll die, leaving no progeny to carry on. All of a sudden, that population is gone. Here's Brent Bevan from the Department of Conservation. Biodiversity in New Zealand's in, um, in quite serious trouble. I, I think most people can't see what's missing and they don't realise how bad the situation is. And I worked through the last 20 years of the New Zealand Biodiversity Strategy and our goal was to halt the decline. It wasn't to get us back to this utopia of a world with lots of birds, it was just to stop the decline. And we failed to do that. If we don't do something substantially different now, um, it's going to start to get beyond where we can get recovery. Brent is part of a nation's determination to save what's left. In 2016, then-Prime Minister John Key served an eviction order on stoats, rats and possums. And he called it Predator-Free 2050. By 2050, every single part of New Zealand will be completely free of rats, stoats and possums. Key's speech drew a line in the sand, a line that marked the end of our tolerance for biodiversity loss and a step change in the way we deal with it. Next time, we'll look at just how we mean to do that. Thanks for listening. This is Dealing With Loss, the first episode of a four-part podcast series, Fight for the Wild, written and presented by me, Dave Hansford. Fight for the Wild is a Fisheye Films production. Series producer is Peter Young. Editing and sound design by Bledon Parry. Audio post by Chris Sinclair. Executive producers for RNZ are Alison Balance and Tim Watkin. And RNZ commissioning is Kay Almers and Tim Burnell. Fight for the Wild is made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. With support from the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge, Next Foundation, Predator Free 2050 Limited, and the New Zealand Regional Council's Biodiversity Forum. Fight for the Wild is a film and podcast series. Watch it on RNZ Freeview On Demand, or find it on the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Kakitiano.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.